the portion of lawless rebels who lived under the old covenant. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? There are degrees of heinousness in sinning, John 19.11, and so there are degrees in the punishment of their perpetrators. Luke 12:47 and 48. Here this solemn truth is presented in the interrogative form. Compare chapter 2 verse 3. So as to search the conscience of each hearer. If I have been favored with a knowledge of the gospel denied to half the human race, if I have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit which is more than multitudes of Romanists are, if I profess to have received Christ as my Savior and have praised Him for His redeeming grace, what punishment can fitly meet my crimes if I now despise His Lordship, flout His authority, break His commandments, walk with His enemies, and go on sinning presumptuously, till I end by committing the great transgression. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? Instead of contenting himself with a general declaration of the equity of God's dealings with apostates, the apostle here adduces additional particulars of the crime before him. In this verse, we have brought before us the awful aggravations of the sin of apostasy, showing what is implied and involved in this unpardonable transgression. Three things are specified, at each of which we shall briefly glance. First, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? Once more, we would call attention to the varied manner in which the Holy Spirit refers to the Savior in this epistle. Here, it is not Jesus or Christ, but the Son of God, and that because his purpose is to emphasize the infinite dignity of the one slighted. It is not a mere man nor even an angel, but none less than the second person of the Holy Trinity who is so grievously insulted. Backsliding and apostasy is a treating of the Lord of glory with the utmost contempt. What could be worse? The figure here employed is very expressive and solemn. To tread underfoot is the basest use to which a thing can be put. It signifies a scornful spurning of an object as a thing that is worthless and is applied to swine trampling pearls under their feet. Matthew 7, 6 Oh, my hearer! when we deliberately ignore the claims of God's Son and despise His commandments, 
we are treading His authority beneath our feet. Second, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith He was sanctified an unholy thing. Here is John Owen rightly pointed out the second aggravation of the sin spoken of is its opposition to the office of Christ, especially His priestly office and the sacrifice He offered thereby, called here the blood of the covenant. Unquote. In our exposition of chapter 9, we sought to show in what sense the blood of Christ was the blood of the covenant. It was that whereby the new covenant and testament was confirmed and made effectual unto all its grace to those who believe, being the foundation of all God's actings toward Christ in His resurrection, exaltation, and intercession. Compare chapter 13, verse 20. Now the backslider and apostate does by his conduct treat that precious blood as though it were a worthless thing. There are many degrees of this frightful sin, but, O oh, my hearer, whenever we give rein to our lusts and are not constrained by the love of Christ to render Him that devotion and obedience which are His due, we are, in fact, despising the blood of the covenant. Third, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. This is the greatest aggravation of all. Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Luke 12.10 it is by the Spirit the Christian was regenerated, enlightened, convicted, and brought to Christ. It is by the Spirit the Christian is led and fed, taught and sanctified. What reverence is due him as a divine person? What gratitude as a divine benefactor? How dreadful the sin then which treats him with insolence, which scorns to attend unto his winsome voice, which despises his gracious entreaties. While the grossest form of the sin here referred to is malignantly imputing unto Satan the works of the Spirit, yet there are mild degrees of it. O oh, my hearer, let us earnestly endeavor to keep from grieving him, Ephesians 4.30, and more completely yield ourselves to be led, Romans 8.14, by him along the highway of practical holiness. Saith the Lord Almighty, to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, in spirit, and of a contrite heart, and trembleth at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. Surely, if there is a passage anywhere in Holy Writ which should cause each of us to tremble, 
It is the one now before us. Not tremble, lest we have already committed this unpardonable sin, for they who have done so are beyond all exercise of conscience, being given up by God to hardness of heart. No, but tremble, lest we should begin a course of backsliding, which, if unarrested, would certainly lead thereto. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 O my hearer, make this your daily prayer. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. Psalm 17.5 For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 30. In this verse, further confirmation is supplied of the awful severity and the absolute certainty of the punishment of apostates. Once more we have an example of a most important principle which regulated the apostle in his ministry, both oral and written. In verses 28 and 29, he had given a specimen of spiritual reasoning, drawing a clear and logical inference from the less to the greater. Yet decisive and unanswerable as this was, he rested not his case upon it, but instead established it by quoting from the Holy Scriptures. Let servants of God today act upon the same principle and give a definite, Thus saith the Lord, for all they advance. For we know him that hath said, Here our attention is directed unto the divine character, what God is in himself. Nothing behooves us more than to frequently and fully consider who it is with whom we have to do. Our conception of the divine character plays an important part in molding our hearts and regulating our conduct. Therefore it is that we find the apostle in another place praying that the saints may be increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10 It is a most profitable exercise for the soul to be often engaged in contemplating the divine attributes, pondering God's almighty power, ineffable holiness, unimpeachable veracity, exact justice, absolute faithfulness, and terrible severity. Christ himself has bidden us, Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10.28 the better God's character be known, the more we heed that exhortation of Christ's. The clearer shall we perceive that there is nothing unsuited to the holiness of God in what Scripture affirms concerning His dealings with the wicked. It is because the true nature of sin is so little viewed in the light of God's awful holiness that so many fail to recognize its infinite demerits. 
For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. The reference is to Deuteronomy 32.35, though the apostle does not quote word for word as we now have that text. Moses was there reminding of the office which God holds as the judge of all the earth. As such, he enforces his righteous law and inflicts its just punishment on willful and impenitent sinners. Though in his unsearchable wisdom he is often pleased to forbear for a while, for he bears with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Romans 9.22 Nevertheless, God will yet pay to every transgressor the full wages which their sins have earned. God bore long with the antediluvians, but at the end he destroyed them by the flood. Wondrous was his patience toward the Sodomites, but at his appointed season he rained down fire and brimstone upon them. With amazing forbearance he tolerates the immeasurable wickedness of the world, but the day is swiftly approaching when he will avenge himself upon all who now so stoutly oppose him. And again the Lord shall judge his people. A most important example is here given as a guide to teach us how Scripture is to be applied. The reference is to what is recorded in Deuteronomy 32.36, but there it is God's care exercised on behalf of His people, while here it is His vengeance upon their enemies. Some have caviled at the appositeness of the Apostles' quotation, yet they should not. Each particular scripture has a general application and is not to be limited unto those first addressed. If God undertakes to protect His people, He will certainly exercise judgment on those who apostatize. He did so in the past. See 1 Corinthians 10.5. He will do so in the future. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 and 8. The rule which is established by this quotation from Deuteronomy is that all Scripture is equally applicable unto all cases of the like nature. What God says concerning those who are the enemies of His people becomes applicable to His people should they break and reject His covenant. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 31, Here is the unescapable conclusion which must be drawn from all that has been before us. This word fearful ought to make every trifler with sin tremble as did Belshazzar when he saw the handwriting upon the wall. To fall into the hands of is a metaphor denoting the utter helplessness of the victim when captured by his enemy. The one into whose hands the apostate falls is the living God. John Calvin said, A mortal man, however incensed he may be, 
cannot carry his vengeance beyond death, but God's power is not bounded by so narrow limits. Unquote. No, forever and ever will God's wrath burn against the objects of his judgment, nor will the supplications of sinners prevail upon him. See Proverbs 1.28 and Ezekiel 8.18. By the penitent and obedient, God is loved and adored, but by the impenitent and defiant, he is to be dreaded. The wicked may now pride themselves that in the day of judgment they will placate God by their tears, but they will then find that not only his justice, but his outraged mercy also calls aloud for his vengeance upon them. Men may now be beguiled by visions of a larger hope, but in that day they shall discover it is only another of Satan's lies. Oh, how the terror of the Lord, Second Corinthians 5.11, ought to stir up God's servants to warn and persuade men before the day of grace is finally closed. And how it should make each one of us walk softly before God, sparing no pains to make our calling and election sure. It is only as we add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love, that we have scriptural assurance that we shall never fall. Second Peter 1, 5-10 Arthur Pink Continued in the June Studies Study number 3 the life of David, his early experiences. Had we sought a topical title for this article, the price of popularity might well have been selected. The 17th chapter of 1 Samuel closes by recounting the memorable victory of David over Goliath, the Philistine giant. The 18th chapter informs us of a number of things which formed the sequel to that notable achievement. There is much which those who are ambitious and covetous of earthly honor do well to take to heart. An accurate portrayal is given of different phases and features of human nature that is full of instruction for those who will duly ponder the same. Much is condensed into a small compass, but little imagination is required in order to obtain a vivid conception of what is there presented. One scene after another is passed in rapid review, but amid them all the man after God's own heart acquitted himself admirably. May the Lord enable each of us to profit from what is here recorded for our learning. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
1 Samuel 18.1 and compare verses 3 and 4. Let us admire here the tender grace of God and behold an illustration of a blessed principle in his dealings with us. Jonathan was the son of Saul and therefore, ordinarily, heir apparent to the throne. But as we have seen, David had been anointed unto that position. There was, therefore, occasion for Jonathan to look upon David as his rival and to be filled with jealousy and hatred against him. Instead, his heart is united unto him with a tender affection. This should not be attributed to the amiability of his character, but is to be ascribed unto him in whose hand are all our hearts and ways. What we have just called attention to is not sufficiently recognized and pondered in these evil days, no, not even by the people of God. There is nothing recorded of Jonathan which really shows that he was a saved man, but not a little to the contrary, particularly in the closing scenes of his life. When then the heart of a man of the world is drawn out to a saint, when he shows kindness unto him, we should always discern the secret workings of God's power graciously exercised for us. He who employed ravens to feed his servant Elijah, 1 Kings 17, often moves the hearts and minds of unregenerate people to be kind toward his children. It was the Lord who gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, Genesis 39.21. The Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians, Exodus 3.21, at the time of their exodus. Esther, in the sight of King Ahasuerus, Esther 5.2. It is so still, and we only honor God when we perceive and own this, and praise him for it. David's finding favor in the eyes of Jonathan was the more noteworthy in that the envy and enmity of Saul was soon stirred against him. What a mercy from God was it then for David to have a true friend in his enemy's household. The value of it will come before us later. It was by this means that our hero received warning and his safety was promoted. In like manner, there are few of God's children unto whom he does not in critical seasons raise up those who are kindly disposed toward them and who in various ways help and succor them. Thus it has been in the life of the writer and we doubt not with many of our hearers also. Let us admire the Lord's goodness and adore His faithfulness in thus giving us the sympathy and assistance of unsaved friends in a hostile world. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Verse 2 The purpose of God concerning David was beginning to ripen. First, 
He had so overruled things that Saul had sent for him to attend the king occasionally in his fits of melancholy. But now David was made a permanent member of the court. This was but fitting in view of the promise which had been made to him by the king before he encountered Goliath, that if victorious, Saul's daughter should be given to him to wife. Chapter 17, verse 25. Thus was David being fitted for his royal duties. It is blessed when we are able to realize that each providential change in our lives is another step toward the accomplishing of the divine counsels concerning us. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 5. Beautiful is it to behold here the humility and fidelity of the one upon whom the anointing oil already rested. Diligently had he fulfilled his trust in the sheepfold at Bethlehem, Dutifully did he now carry out the orders of the king. Let this be duly laid to heart by any who are tempted to chafe under the situation which they now occupy. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Ecclesiastes 9.10 defines the duty of each one of us. The teaching of the New Testament is, of course, the same. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit. Romans 12:11. Whatever position you occupy, dear hearer, no matter how humble or distasteful, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Colossians 3:23 and behaved himself wisely. How very few do so. How many have through injudicious conduct not only hindered their spiritual progress, but ruined their earthly prospects. Such a word as the one now before us needs to be turned into prayer, believing, fervent, persevering. Especially is that counsel timely unto the young. We need to ask God to enable us to carry ourselves wisely in every situation in which He has placed us, that we may redeem the time, be on our guard against temptations, and perform each duty to the very best of our ability. Be ye wise as serpents, and harmless as doves. Matthew 10.16 does not mean be compromisers and temporizers, tricky and deceitful, but take into consideration the fickleness of human nature and trust none but God. In David's behaving himself wisely, he points again unto him of whom God said, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Isaiah 52:13 Saul now set David over the men of war. 
though not made commander-in-chief, some high military office was given him, possibly over the king's bodyguard. This was a further step toward the equipping of David for his life's work. There was much fighting ahead of him, powerful enemies of Israel, which had to be conquered. Thus was God making all things work together for his good. What a change from the obscurity and peace of pastoral life to becoming a courtier and soldier. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. God gave their future ruler favor in the eyes both of the common people and of the court. How this reminds us of what is recorded of the antitype. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2.52 And it came to pass, as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Verses 6 and 7. How this incident served to make manifest the low spiritual state into which the nation of Israel had now sunk. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Matthew 12.34 The language we employ is a sure index to the condition of our souls. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world. 1 John 4.5 It is indeed distressing, yet ought not to be surprising, that so very, very few professing Christians in their general conversation with each other Minister grace unto the hearers. Ephesians 4.29 Not surprising, because the great majority of them are strangers to the power of godliness. The language used by the women of Israel when celebrating the death of Goliath and the defeating of the Philistines gave plain indication that their hearts and minds were occupied only with the human victors. God was not in all their thoughts. Psalm 10.4 Alas, that this is so often the case today. We are living in an age of hero worship, and Christendom itself is infected by this evil spirit. Man is eulogized and magnified on every hand, not only out in the world, but even in the so-called churches, Bible conferences, and religious periodicals, seen in the advertising of the speakers, the printing of their photos, and the toadying to them. Oh, how little hiding behind the cross, how little self-effacement there is today. Seize ye from men, Isaiah 2.22 needs to be placed in large letters over the platforms of all the big religious gatherings in this man-deifying age. 
No wonder the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched. Yet, where are the voices being raised in faithful protest? And the women answered as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. What a sad contrast was this from what we find recorded in Exodus 15. A far greater overthrow of the enemy was witnessed by Israel at the Red Sea than what had just taken place in the valley of Elah. 1 Samuel 17.19 Yet we do not find the mothers of these women of Israel magnifying Moses and singing his praises. Instead, we hear Miriam saying to her sisters, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Verse 21 Jehovah was there given his true place, the victory being ascribed to him and not to the human instruments. See to it, dear hearer, that no matter what the common and evil custom be to the contrary, you give all the glory to him unto whom alone it rightfully belongs. And Saul was very wrath, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? Verse 8. The song of the women was not only dishonoring to God, but was impolitic as well. As we saw in verse 5, David behaved himself wisely, but the conduct of Israel's daughters was in sharp contrast therefrom. The honoring of David above Saul was more than the king's proud heart could endure. The activity of the flesh and the women acted upon the flesh in him. Unable to rejoice in what God had wrought through another, Saul was envious when he heard the superior praises of David being sung. He could not tolerate the thought of being second. Perhaps someone may be inclined to raise the question, why did not God restrain those women from exalting David in song above Saul? as he could easily have done, and thus preventing the rising of the king's jealousy. Several answers may be returned to this query. It subserved God's purpose and promoted the spiritual good of David. God often withholds his curbing hand in order that it may the better appear what is in fallen man and unregenerate man. Were he not to do so, the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil would not be so evident. Moreover, David was being flattered, and flattery is ever a dangerous thing. Therefore does God often wisely and mercifully check our proud hearts from being unduly elated thereby, by causing some to think and speak evil of us. Thomas Scott said, for every great and good work, a man must expect to be envied by his neighbor. No distinction or preeminence 
can be so unexceptionably obtained, but it will expose the possessor to slander and malice, and perhaps to the most fatal consequences. But such trials are very useful to those who love God. They serve as a counterpoise to the honor put upon them and check the growth of pride and attachment to the world. They exercise them to faith, patience, meekness, and communion with God. They give them a fair opportunity of exemplifying the amiable nature and tendency of true godliness by acting with wisdom and propriety in the most difficult circumstances. They make way for increasing experience of the Lord's faithfulness in restraining their enemies, raising them up friends, and affording them His gracious protection. And they both prepare them for those stations in which they are to be employed and open their way to them. For in due time, modest merit will shine forth with double luster. Ere passing on, let it be remembered that each detail of this chapter and everything in the Old Testament Scriptures is written for our learning. Romans 15.4 Especially does it need to be emphasized for the benefit of the young that lavish commendations from those who admire and love us in such a world as this often prove a real injury, and in all cases everything should be avoided which can excite envy and opposition, except the performance of our duty to God and man. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. Luke 6.26 During the twelve years he was in the pastorate, the writer deemed it expedient to retire into the vestry as soon as the service was over. The flesh loves to hear the eulogies of the people, but they are not conducive to humility. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Jeremiah 45, 5 And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Verse 9 Perceiving that David was looked upon favorably by the people. Verse 5 Jealous of the praise which was accorded him. Verse 7 Fearful that he might soon lose the kingdom. Verse 8 Saul now regarded the slayer of Goliath with a malignant eye. Instead of looking upon David with esteem and gratitude as he should have done because of his gallant behavior, he jealously observed his ways and actions, biding his time to do him injury. What a solemn example does this provide of the inconstancy of poor human nature. Only a little before, Saul had loved him greatly, chapter 16, verse 21, and now he hated him. Beware, my hearer, of the fickleness of the human heart. There is only one who can truthfully say, I change not. Malachi 3.6 If David was counting upon the stability of Saul's affection for him, if he concluded that his military prowess had established him in the king's favor, 
he was now to meet with a rude awakening. Instead of gratitude, there was cruel envy. Instead of kindly treatment, his very life was sought. And this too is recorded for our instruction. The Holy Scriptures not only unveiled to us the attributes of God, but they also revealed to us the character of man. Fallen human nature is faithfully depicted as it actually is. The more attentively God's word be pondered and its teachings and principles absorbed, the better will we be fortified against many a bitter disappointment. There is no excuse for any of us being deceived by people. If we took to heart the solemn warnings which the Bible furnishes, we should be far more upon our guard and would heed such exhortations as are found in Psalm 146.3, Proverbs 17.18, Jeremiah 9.4.17.5, and Micah 7.5. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house and David played with his hand, as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall. And David avoided out of his presence twice. Verses 10 and 11. How swiftly troubles follow on the heels of triumphs. What a contrast between hearing the acclaiming songs of the women and dodging a murderous weapon. And yet how true to life! Well then does each of us need to seek grace that we may learn to hold everything down here with a light hand. Rightly did one of the Puritans counsel, Build not thy nest in any earthly tree, for the whole forest is doomed to destruction. It is only as the heart is set upon things above that we find an object which will never disappoint nor pall. The evil spirit came from God upon Saul. Yes, the wicked as well as the righteous, evil spirits as well as holy angels, are under the absolute and immediate control of God. Judges 9.23 but let us not miss the solemn connection between what is recorded in verse 9 and verse 10. When we indulge jealousy and hatred, we give place to the devil, Ephesians 4.26 and 27. And he prophesied, all prophesyings are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is why we need to heed 1 John 4.1. Observe the enemy's subtlety. No doubt Saul's prophesying was designed to take David off his guard. He would least expect an attempt on his life at such a time. Blessed is it to note that after avoiding the deadly weapon cast at him, David did not pick it up and hurl it at Saul. Instead, he quietly withdrew from his presence. May like grace be granted unto both writer and hearer when tempted 
to retaliate upon those who wrong us. Arthur Pink Continued in the June Studies Study number four Letters from the Poor of the Flock A sister in Kentucky writes, My pathway is not carpeted or bordered with roses. I have gone through many trials. It would be a great comfort if I could hear some good preaching. I almost shout when I get your paper. I know I will get some good food for my hungry soul. I love every word they contain. I pray the Lord will give you health, strength, wisdom, and knowledge to continue your paper, to feed the hungry sheep. It hurts me because I cannot send a little offering to help pay the expenses of the dear paper you are sending out. My dear old brother says he has not received your paper since last December. He said it was a great comfort to him He is very feeble, being 81 years old. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.